Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new edition of Thinking Aloud About Film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. And today we're going to be talking about The Driver's Seat, uh, Identikit, uh, a film directed by uh, Giuseppe Patroni Griffi, but more famously, perhaps, based on the novel by Muriel Spark. It's a film that was never previously been released in the UK, apparently, despite starring Liz Taylor and being based on the Muriel Spark novel. So that's quite, quite surprising. Uh, it's had a very nice restoration, it's available on BFI Player and, and Blu-ray. It, it is a really beautiful film. Uh, it, the cinematographer is Vittorio Storaro. So uh, the restoration in this kind of really brings out particular values. I actually thought that I've rarely seen uh, Elizabeth Taylor more beautiful. You know, she's clearly middle-aged. I think she must be in her 40s. And she still looks, you know, absolutely gorgeous. She's clearly, you do see the ravages of time a little bit, right? But I think that, that, that only makes her more beautiful somehow, right? And I do think that uh, Storaro's work has a lot to do with it. Obviously, particularly in the scene that culminates everything in the forest and so on, which, you know, spoilers ahead. I'll talk a bit about the book as well, because I yeah. haven't read the book yet. Have you, have you read the book? I haven't. No, okay, so we can talk about that as well. I mean, it's a very strange film. It's a very bizarre film with a lot of oddities, a lot of things that don't quite make sense. Characters just appear and disappear. And what's perhaps surprising is that that's exactly how the book is. It's 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 incredibly close to the book with a, with a couple of differences. So essentially, it's a story of a, a woman with Lise who leaves her home in an unspecified northern European city, which may be Copenhagen, but actually seems to be somewhere in Germany, and travels south to another unspecified European city, which appears to be Rome, for a holiday. She's in the middle of a mental health crisis and, and seems to have had a history of mental health problems. She, she wanders around Rome, having a series of quite bizarre and slightly disturbing encounters with people. Meanwhile, you, you see flash forwards to um, a police investigation. So you, you'll, you'll meet a character that Liz Taylor meets, and then suddenly you see them being interrogated a few days later by the police, and you gradually realise why those interrogations are happening and what the fate of, the, of, the, of Liz Taylor's character is. That's actually revealed quite early in the film. I suppose. I, 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 this is a spoiler. I won't spoil the ending of the film, but you learn quite early in the film that the character has, has been killed. Um, and that's what's being investigated. And it, essentially, this, this, this is a story of a day in the life of this character, traveling around Rome, meeting people, and then ultimately meeting her death. Mm. I think the structure is fascinating because it's it's really kind of partial so kind of it's, it's like a bit of a jigsaw but it's almost like you get a bit of information then it flashes forward to an investigation of what you've just seen yeah then you have another flashback and then kind of the investigation proceeds a little bit more again yeah so so it's like this jigsaw that only kind of comes together really at the end of the film this is exactly how the book is structured as well. It's amazing because really, like in a way, there's nothing extraneous in the film. Everything that you see 
is there for a reason and you make sense of it. So, you know, when she's shopping for a little dagger at the airport and says it's too expensive, it all makes sense uh, later on. I, I enjoyed it so much and it's, it's so much of its era and it raises a whole series of questions about the cinema of that period, American colonization of cinema of that period, Elizabeth Taylor's career, right, and how sexist the reception to it has has been, again, of this period, right? And I think kind of, you know, those are all things I'd like I'd like to talk a little bit about, really. Uh, but but first, you kind of, you know, again, what drew you to? Partly because I'd re I'd read the book I'd, for the first time early this year. The book's very short; it's only about 120 pages, and I kind of re read it pretty much in one sitting. And it has a real impact because it has that narrative, the same narrative drive as, as as the film, the kind of leading you to this very disturbing conclusion. Then I saw the publicity about the, the re-release of the film and thought, oh, okay, that's the it's the Muriel Spark book, um, was fascinated to see how that translates to film. So it's very interesting in terms of how it looks. It's very sort of achingly mid-70s. You know, the, all the interiors are very, very of the era. All, all of the clothing is very of the era. Um, although Liz Taylor's costume is, is kind of deliberately clashing with everything else. The where, As you say, where it sits in Liz Taylor's career is very interesting. I guess, I mean, I guess you can compare what she's doing at this point to what someone like Dirk Bogart was doing at this point, kind of moving from mainstream films to these sort of international art house type films. Um, but Dirk Bogart's art house career is taken seriously and probably was at the time in it a way was. that Liz Taylor's isn't. I know. Um, and I think it has that also. So that's not just a gendered thing. But I think it is also an American-European divide. I mean, I remember reading about Liz Taylor uh, in in the period, and it was like, oh, you know, she she made all these great Hollywood films, and you know, then there were these unknown European films that never got a release. Basically, I want to talk a little bit about about Elizabeth Taylor's career of the late 60s and the early 70s. As we know, uh, from uh, the period of Cleopatra in 63, she was really the most famous woman in the world, really. She just won the Academy Award, and then she was like box office gold, the highest paid actor, I think, throughout this period. But then something happened, I think, after Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? Because famously, in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, she played much older than she was, and she let loose as an actress and, you know, won her second Academy Award. So there's kind of like an artistic freeing up there, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, that somehow made her much more ambitious and made her take much greater risks uh, as an actress. So really, we can argue that The Taming of the Shrew and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, 66, 67, that was really her last period as a box office star. And after that, she made a whole series of really daring films. Yeah, uh, Doc, Dr. Faustus, uh, Boom, Secret Ceremony, Z and Company, right? I mean, those are all kind of very good. You know, we would now call 
indie, obviously ambitious, experimental films with a large budget. She was still getting a movie star's, yeah, her, her you know, minimum of $1 million to do these films. They're very daring films that I think were largely, unlike your example of Dirk Bogart, were not supported, really. You know, there's something in this film, just, a, you know, a daring with her body and, and her looks and her voice. And, I mean, the whole film is also about this woman trying on identities, right? You know, she plays with accents and, you know, she invents things and she takes something that someone just said to her and conveys it to someone else as part of her background, right? I mean, it's a very complex role and it's a very daring performance. I mean, the bit in the airport where she calls attention to herself with her hands and, you know, and so on, I thought was just kind yeah, of like magnificent yeah. have, uh, have you, work. Have you ever seen Ash Wednesday, which is the film she did before this? No. So I, I, that, it's very interesting in that context. So because I, I, I saw it, again, it seems to be very rare. I'm not aware of it having any sort of current release. It was showed, the BFI showed it as part of their film on film season in, in a not brilliant print but it, but the only print the only 35 millimeter print in the uk she plays a woman who i guess is, is in her 60s who's married to henry fonda and henry fonda is having an affair or wants to leave her because he's, he's got a younger woman so she at the start of the film the liz taylor character has extensive plastic surgery which you see in quite graphic detail as a result of this plastic surgery becomes liz taylor you know becomes early 40s liz taylor or however old she was at the time and then goes to, a, um, I think, a hotel in Switzerland and has an affair with Helmut Berger, as in, you know, why, why, why wouldn't you do that? Again, it's a very sort of daring film. It's a very sort of daring performance by Liz Taylor. And it's from what you, what you were saying about someone trying on identities and kind of playing with the public image and the public perception of who Liz Taylor is, is, is a very interesting comparison to this one. The, the other thing that I found fascinating about Ash Wednesday is Henry, so Henry Fonda get, or as you'd expect, gets something. He gets second billing. Um, the title sequence is a series of kind of faked photos of Liz Taylor and Henry Fonda at various ages. You know, essentially publicity photos of the two of them, the seventies equivalent of Photoshop together to make it look like Henry Fonda and Liz Taylor have had this you know thirty-year married relationship, right? Um, and then for like. The first hour and 20 minutes of the film, Henry Fonda doesn't appear at all. So I thought initially, is Henry Fonda just in the title sequence and he's just yeah. being used as another icon? And it's, it's a bit disappointing when he actually does turn up at the end, but only very briefly. But yeah, it's, again, but again, it's, I just felt it was playing with public perceptions of Liz Taylor, playing with public perceptions of Henry Fonda as well um, in, in, a, in a very interesting way. But again, similar to this one, um, a very you know, virtually unseen film, I think. Yes, I I, um, I saw reflections in the Golden Eye because that got uh, a Blu-ray restoration release. Uh, you could see it in its original its original sepia. It's a really really daring film. You know, it's uh, Marlon Brando as a repressed homosexual, and Elizabeth Taylor is the wife. You know, who is uh, sexually repressed. Uh, and needy, and you know, and she's got this this incredible nude scene in the film, which it's about 
being undesired and unwanted and sexually frustrated and you know and I think she's just magnificent in this period uh, and I think a lot of the reason why you know the films were not thought more of was not a failure necessarily of the films but of criticism because you know these are kind of daring unusual films that really push the boundaries and I'm thinking here of Reflections in a Golden Eye, the two Losey films. It's, it's taking a risk on directors yeah. and material. And it's, it's kind of like people didn't want to see her other than seeing her playing, in quotes, Liz Taylor. Um, and yeah. in a way, if you look at IMDb, mostly after this film, um, with a few exceptions, it's mostly, you know, small TV roles or playing small supporting roles or playing, you know, roles where it's playing with the idea of it being a Liz Taylor, like in the Flintstones or, or in, in various soaps or whatever, um, which is a shame, you know, if she, if she had the opportunities to, to kind of carry on with, with, with this kind of direction rather than retreating into playing Liz Taylor. It's, uh, it's a real shame. I mean, she is, she is a truly great actress. And after this period, she'd never get the opportunity again. I mean, her, her later starring roles, you know, she's in The Mirror Cracked, yeah, kind of the Agatha Christie. And I think, you know, not particularly memorable uh, uh, to me. And then, of course, I think her last uh, starring role as a star uh, was that I can think of is Young Toscanini. On TV, she had better opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to continue uh, uh, doing things like Tennessee Williams and Sweet Bird of Youth and so on. But I, I, um, I mean, I, I remember, you know, essentially growing up, um, and, you know, as a teenager and a student, just being aware of Liz Taylor as, as this kind of public figure, not really being aware of her as, as an actress. A bit like someone like Omar Sharif as well, where they, you know, for that whole period, they were just defined by their public image, not, not by their acting. No, it's the same with me. I mean, if I was a teenager... From the late seventies, you know, into the into the eighties, she was amongst the most famous people in the world. You read all about her, but I don't think there was ever a film on release in my local cinemas that starred her, right? Though we did see her on television, right? You know, in in her old movies. So uh, there was a rationale for the fame, um, but but let's go back to the film because it's a really unusual film. It's one that I liked very much, but it's also, I think, a bit of a film by someone who loves cinema and who's making very deliberate choices in each shot, but who isn't particularly dexterous in the medium, if you know what I mean. It's yeah. quite sort of, what's the word? Clinical is the wrong word, but, but, it, but it's kind of, everything looks great. Everything, all of as I, I say, I love all those seventies interiors. Um, the, the costume design is amazing. The, it, yeah, everything looks amazing, but it's all a bit clinical. The weird, the thing it reminded me of in a very odd way, and I, I was really struck by this: the scene where they, it was the scene where they're walking towards the air, the airplane, where this suddenly struck me that it's basically it reminded me of of Shantati's playtime. Um, where it's this kind of eccentric figure um, going walking around these, this sort of semi-deserted city um, in 
in all these very very contemporary in, in, in interiors and it you know and it looks amazing but it, it kind of it, it's a bit self-conscious about how it looks i, I think I, I mean i think so i was wondering in watching it because you know so clearly the protagonist is an alienated person so alienated from her life that he's she's seeking death right so the style of shooting obviously complements that but i did think also there's a way of getting the audience much more involved in the the inner workings of this woman's life and you know to make the audience feel more for what she's going through and so on whereas it remains at a very distancing level comparing it again to the book firstly the book gives you a little bit more background about her not a lot but you or, or you learn i mean the first thing is that you learn that she's supposed to she's a she's described as being neither good looking or bad looking she's a very uh. average she's supposed to be this very average woman in her 30s which are not Liz Taylor. Liz Taylor no. is not that woman, but that's fine. It works. But the the other she the only other thing you really learn is that she works. She she she's single. She's a, she works in an accountancy firm. She has a in quite a senior position. She's previously had mental health problems, and she's going on a long holiday as, as a result. That's really all you know. But the other thing is, it doesn't have that. The book doesn't have that distancing effect of of the kind of unrealistic settings that you it feels very much like it's set in the real world and she's this extraordinary figure in the real world whereas the film doesn't really feel like it's set in the real world i think partly as a result of the settings partly as a result of the 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 only thing that the film has added really is this background of these um sudden outbursts of terrorist incidents which which are not they're they're, they're not in the book so the, there's the incident at the airport. There's the, uh, the 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 hand grenade thrown at the car. In, in the book, they just caught up in a student demonstration. That's how that happens. Um, and the, the 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 reference to the fact that the the shop is empty because there'd been a bomb the previous day. That that's the in in the book. The, the sh it's just a normal department store. It doesn't you know it's it's an, it's an average store. It's full of people. You know it, it's not this strange atmosphere of them wandering around this empty um empty store in the middle of the day so it's it kind of the, the film dis, i think distances you from what's going on in a way that the book doesn't but both they both work i think but. yeah because for me all of those things in the film really evoke that period <laughs> you know of 1970s and kidnappings and terrorist violence and you know i remember as a child hearing all of that in the news but the film kind of evokes that you know, that period, really, in, in very, very interesting ways. Uh, so I, I like that all very much. And actually, I thought Elizabeth Taylor looked extraordinary. Yeah, she, she looks extraordinarily beautiful to me. But also, she could be like a kind of every woman, actually. There was something, she, you know, she was also slightly frumpy and the hair was undone and... You know, so so I thought she was very convincing in a way yeah, as, yeah. you know, this lost woman who's just had a nervous breakdown, who's slightly over the hill and who's always being sexualized. I thought the film does that like so well. There's the sense of her own identity and trying them out and, so, you know, what's the word? He's not my type. He is my type. Like, uh, you know, reducing everybody into types. But she herself is obviously kind of being reduced as, you know, a quasi prostitute, someone who should be available, that the men are always surprised that she doesn't want to. Yeah, yeah. 
there's, there's this really interesting thing in the book that the, the book was published in in 1970 um and people assume she's a prostitute when they see her and the reason they assume she's a prostitute is because her dress is slightly too long because yes. at that point normal women your know, mothers and daughters are all wearing miniskirts and she's wearing this skirt that, that ends below her knees and so because her skirt it's this quite interesting this never occurred to me that in 1970 if if your dress was too long people thought you were a prostitute not if your dress was too short that is in the film and i think it is also kind of you know very interesting i thought you know the whole kind of um scenes with mona mona, washbourne, mona washbourne yeah Washburn, kind of were very interesting in, in that regard, right? Because Mona Washburn looks so respectable and middle class and, you know, she's kind of buying slippers for her nephew yeah. and so on. And then, you know, there's Elizabeth Taylor next to her who's looking really blousy and frowsy and loud. Kind of there's something being contrasted, yeah, ab about that. There's also kind of a, a commentary on sexism, on, on working women on the expectations of not being married, you know, at 40, uh, of a woman of a certain age having a boyfriend, in quotation marks, and what that means. You can, you can tease out kind of a whole critique of, of sexism. Yeah, I was trying to understand how the book had been received at the time. and Couldn't actually find any contemporary reviews, but found some more, interesting, more recent reviews, some of which completely missed the point of it, and some of which were quite quite interesting what one review i think written by a woman was making the point that in 1970 she's the the book version of the character is mid-30s lives on her own in quite a stylish flat and it still looks like quite a stylish flat in the film you know it's, it's a modern flat it's not a it's not a grotty bed set. it's a modern well-designed yeah, flat, well flat um you know she's got a car she's got a successful job she's got a career and she's got that on her own terms but even in you know, in the 70s, the early 70s, is that is she seen as a failure as a woman because, you know, that lifestyle is fine when she's in her mid-20s, but now she's in her mid-30s. And this is perhaps the mm. reason for the crisis, that she, yes. you know, she, she suddenly, um, suddenly, as this, you know, what was this kind of young, free, single, swinging woman in, in the mid-60s, by the mid-70s, she's in her mid-30s, and society is seeing her very differently. I think that's how the film begins, right? She's, yeah, yeah. You're, you're told that uh, uh, she's had a nervous breakdown and she's been let go, but really she wants a vacation anyway, and her friend encourages her to take that vacation. Clearly, this is a kind of, you know, a, a, mid, a midlife crisis. Yes, yeah. yeah. That then kind of, you know, is taken to a particular extreme. And it's also, I suppose, about a woman who wants to leave her mark. It begins with her buying this dress that is as loud as it can be because she's going south on holiday, but also she wants to be able to have stain. Yes, not stain-proof. You know, <laughs> not stain-proof, right? She wants to leave a mark, you know, which is precisely what she does kind of at the end of the film. And I thought it's worth, you know, just to, to work through my idea of, you know, why this is a filmmaker with interesting ideas, but not necessarily a very adept one. You know, when, when you think of those scenes in the park at the end, which are kind of like, make the whole film come together, they are so beautifully lit by Vittorio Soraro, right? It's just a joy to see the outline of Elizabeth Taylor's face. And, you know, it's, uh, the lighting is gorgeous. Uh, 
It looks gorgeous. But it isn't filmed particularly memorably. The camera doesn't do much. It's at a distance initially. You know, then it comes close. But you think that this moment of, of death and ecstasy and finally leaving her mark, you know, and also casting other people into a great deal of trouble and so on. It's a very selfish act in some ways. Her leaving her mark is going to cost other people something. It's actually kind of filmed. Yeah, so the lighting is beautiful, but the filming is oddly restrained or distance or... But there, there, there are bits that don't quite have the impact you think they should have. So the, the first reveal of the corpse, which is quite early in the film, it's, it's almost like you could you could miss that that's there, you know, you see the feet. And it, it's, I don't quite know what could have been done better, but it just feels, because in the, in the book, it's a very short moment where it tells you, you know, in two days' time, she'll be fine dead. And, and um, in, in the film, it kind of doesn't have that impact. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Um, so I would recommend that people get uh, the BFI uh, Blu-ray, because aside from everything else, it looks absolutely mm. astonishing. Yeah, and the, so the same restoration is, on, is the one on BFI. The Blu-ray has a booklet uh, with uh, various essays, uh, including uh, uh, one by Bruce LaBruce, uh, who it turns out is, a as you would expect, uh, is a huge fan of Elizabeth Taylor in this period. There's something quite gay about this film, and I don't know if it's just me projecting or if there is something else there. Um, so, of course, you know, it is, it is a women's film and it is about identity. Elizabeth Taylor is not exploited uh, in uh, the film, which in itself is, is a, a kind of achievement for this type I, of film. I, th I think yeah. you're right, because uh, there, there, are, there are a lot of scenes in the film that, you know, I mean, there's the, there's the scene where she, she's just in her underwear in the, in the clothes shop. There's the scene where she's, um, where, the, where the, the mechanic tries to rape her. There's, there's the murder scenes. There, there are many, many scenes where this could have been filmed in a kind of exp exploitive way, where, like you might expect in uh, an Italian film about murder of the period, and it just doesn't go there. It, it, she, yeah. I guess part, yeah, partly because, um, you know, in terms of the who has the power on that production, I mean, Liz, Liz Taylor must have had a lot of the power on that. Sure, but I, but, but beyond that, I also wondered if there was like a gay gaze or a homosexual gaze because, you know, the, the key scene for me is the rape or the attempted rape in the car, right, where the camera's attention is actually drawn to the mechanic, the unzipping of, you know, uh, I don't know what you call those works. Yeah, and, yeah, sort of one piece the one thing with nothing underneath <laughs> exactly you know and the focus on the body and the look and the way that that's filmed and the, and, the, the, you know. in the book the mechanic is a, is a sleazy middle-aged fat guy the character in the film is very much not any of those things but he's sleazy but he's very very good looking young youngish yeah, guy yeah exactly uh, so and actually a fat sleazy guy as a rapist would be central casting in film as well Right, like you know, so there's something kind of interesting, I think, about that. You know, just to summarize my view of the film, I think it's a really uh, interesting uh, experiment at a time 
when at least European cinema could afford to experiment with a, a high budget and a superstar in the central role, which I think is, is quite something. And I do think it has one of Elizabeth Taylor's most daring performances, I think, uh, uh, is very, very much worth seeing. Yeah, ab absolutely. I'd, yeah, I'd strongly recommend it. And I'd, yeah, I'd also really recommend the book because it, it's, uh, uh -huh. it's a great and very quick read. <laughs> Uh, all right, so thank you all very much for listening. We're thinking a lot about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.